Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, going to verse 24, and then jumping down to verse 37, all the way to the end of the chapter. Let's give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we come now before your word, we would ask that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, open up our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word and to make us the community that is presented here in Acts chapter 2. Come and do that among us, we ask. For Christ's sake. Amen. It was a couple of years ago now. I was sitting in the sanctuary at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 
It's a church that I had the privilege of being an assistant pastor at for several years previous to coming here and receiving the call to plant Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. The minister of teaching at First Pres, at least at that point, he is now the first, uh, he is the senior minister at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. His name is Dr. Derek Thomas. He was a mentor of mine and a great friend and a tremendous preacher. He, he was Welsh, which meant that Americans were suckers for his accent. I joked regularly that all he had to do was stand up and read the phone book, and we would have thought he did an excellent job every Sunday morning. It's not fair for us Southern American types to preach to a Southern American audience. My voice just doesn't sound nearly as good as Dr. Thomas's, I can assure you. He was in the midst of a series on the book of Acts, and he got to this final section of Acts chapter 2, and he was giving just one message on verses 42 to 47. And he opened up that message with these words. He says, this is the church I want to be a part of. Speaking not of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. No disrespect to them. He was speaking of the church of Acts chapter 2. This is the church I want to be a part of. This is the quality and kind of church that I want the Lord to make in our midst. Now, when he said that, I thought, amen. That's exactly, that's exactly what we want. We want to see the kind of church that's presented here in the final five verses of Acts chapter 2, this is the kind of church that all of us, I would suggest, if we are in Christ and we love the things of the Lord, that at the end of the day, if you said, what kind of church would you like to be a part of? I want to be a part of a church that's like that, that's experiencing this kind of renewal, this kind of transformation. This kind of community, this kind of mission, this kind of gladness, this kind of intimacy, this kind of trust, this kind of zeal, this kind of simplicity, this is the kind of church that we really want to be a part of. Now, when I asked uh, myself this week as we we're beginning this series, and we're going to spend a lot of time in these five verses. For some of you are going to think, really? Like we're going to spend this long in these few verses? I think so. We're going to, for the next seven weeks, including today, focus on those last five verses of Acts chapter 2. Now, as you might imagine, I'm going to bring in all kinds of other scriptures and we'll be all over the place studying God's Word together. But we're going to do a very slow walk leading up to our anniversary as a congregation on November the 20th. Leading to that Thanksgiving service on November the 22nd. Asking the Lord to make us this church. Pleading with Him. 
that he would do this kind of renewal work in our midst. Now, so this first week, as I was looking at the text this week, at my, the question that began to rise up in my mind is, what does it take for a community to become like this? What's it take for this to happen? I need to know what it's going to take if this is the vision and the hope of what it is that the Lord would do in our midst. What are we praying would happen if that's the case? As I begin to look into the text, I was taken back to verses 22 to 24 and verses 37 to 41. I begin to say, there's something here in this text that actually shows us what needs to happen before we can become the community of verses 42 to 47. Something's got to give. Something's got to shift. Some penny has to drop in order for that kind of community to be built. And I really zeroed in on verses 37 and 38 because I think in those two verses we catch a glimpse of what needs to happen in sort of summary form. And so I want you to look, verses 37 and 38, with me just briefly. And I want, you to, I want you to look for these three things. I want you to look for what it is that they heard, what it is they experienced, and how it is they responded. I want you to look at those three things. What it is that they heard, what it is that they experienced, and how is it that they responded. Listen to these words beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this. Now what is the this? Well, it's Peter's sermon. But more specifically, it is the gospel in Peter's sermon that they heard. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's what they experienced. They experienced the message of the gospel and its power transformatively in their hearts. They were cut with laser-like precision with the word through the power of the Spirit. They were cut to the heart. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that means. And then notice how they responded. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now we asked a moment ago, what does it take for us to become the community of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47? It's these things have to happen. We have to hear, really hear, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to experience, really experience, the cutting to the heart of the power of that gospel through the Spirit. And we have to respond, really respond in repentance and belief in that gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to endeavor to be his followers all the days of our lives. That's what's got to happen. That's, that's what's got to happen. Now, no less than that, will create the community that we're going to pursue together over the next seven weeks. Nothing less than that. We could, we could try, and we will be tempted to try, to prop up 
and act like, conjole, conjecture, orchestrate, force to be this kind of community. But actually, this kind of community has got to be made by God. It's got to be made by Him. We can't force it to happen. We can't orchestrate it to happen. We can't manipulate it or pull the strings for this community to be forged. God's got to give it. We can, however, pursue it, and we will. That's what we will do. We will pursue it without trusting in our ability to pursue it or make it happen. We will do it open-handed, open-hearted, desperate for the Lord to make it. Okay? That's what we're going to do. We're going to lay our lives out and say, Lord, lest you build the house, we labor in vain. That's what we're going to say. And there's no uh, playing church. There's no attendance of meetings. There's no going through the motions. There's none of those things that can make this happen. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And yet what we find in the Scriptures is that God loves to renew his people in this way. So as we pursue it, we are not pursuing it as if we are pursuing a God who's kind of going, yeah, I don't really want to give you this. But if you work really hard, I might bless you with it. No, this is, this is a God, if we can see him in this way, he's a God who so deeply loves us, so deeply cares for us. And right now, his heart is so attuned to what it is that you need and what we need as a congregation that he is, as it were, waiting on his tippy toes with expectation to bless us with the power of the gospel through the Spirit. He's eager to do this. He is far more eager to create this community for us than we are even to pursue it from him. That's how good he is. That's how amazing he is. Now, to know that about him, doesn't it stir your heart to say then, let's pursue this God until he comes? Doesn't your heart want to say that? Let's pursue him until he comes, until he moves in our midst. That's why I've titled this series, When God moves. When God moves, what happens? This begins to happen. Verses 42 to 47. This begins to happen when God moves. We're asking him, leading up to the 40 days of our anniversary as a congregation, leading up to Thanksgiving, we're asking the Lord, do this, create this, make this happen in our midst. Nothing short of of this is what we need. So unless we hear the gospel, unless we're cut to the heart by the gospel, unless we respond in faith to the gospel, we can't expect this community to happen in our midst. And so we're asking for God to have mercy. So what we want to do in the remainder of our time together today is we want to say, Lord, help us hear, help us experience, help us respond to your gospel. Now, we'll do this, as you might imagine, because you've gotten used to this with me. We'll do this every week in some way because you and I need it every week, every single week. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing how forgetful we are and how needy we are to have this glorious news of the gospel pressed in on us by the power of the Spirit every single week. So we'll do this every single week. We're going to do it earnestly today, and we're going to say, Lord... 
come and begin a fresh work, move in our midst. And so I want to explore with you what it means to hear the message of the gospel. And to do that, I'm going to go back to Acts chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you might even open to Acts chapter 1 or your cell phones or your devices or whatever it is that you have. Yes, it's okay. It's okay. Acts chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, I want to just remind us today, because we're beginning the series, we're jumping into Acts chapter 2, we need to know what this book is about, what's come before, so we can orient ourselves to say, okay, now I get what needs to happen, and what this hearing and experiencing and responding really needs to look like. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Luke is introducing to us his second volume of writing, and he begins in a very strange way. He says, I produced the first discourse, speaking of the gospel of Luke, which I don't know if you guys remember, we we spent a little time in Luke. You remember this? Yep, like three or four years in Luke, it seemed okay. So we know a little bit about this book. I produced the first discourse, speaking of his gospel, concerning all things, O Theophilus, which just means lover of God, O Theophilus, which Jesus began to do and teach. That's really odd. Okay, now I want you to think about why that's odd. When Luke, who is the writer of Acts, says in his first discourse or volume, he wrote things that Jesus began to both do and teach, it's a little confusing because his book ended with Jesus leaving and ascending into the heavenly places. Jesus is gone, like he's finished. He actually says that on the cross, like, it is finished, and he resurrects from the dead, and then he ascends into the heavenly places. He's no longer on the earth. He's, he's gone. It's over. But, but Luke says, I just wrote to you the things that Jesus began to do and began to teach. And you think, I think you wrote to us, Luke, with all due respect, you are the writer, um, I think you wrote to us what Jesus did and taught, past tense. Luke's going, no, no, I I wrote to you the things that Jesus began to do. He's just getting started. We've just begun. Huh. We've just begun. As I start my second volume of writings, the book of Acts, I am writing to you about the things that Jesus continues to do to do and teach. That's what the book of Acts is about. It is, it is not about preachers and church planting and the church and all of these things that men have done. It's not about that. It's about the work of Jesus and what he continues to both do and teach in and through the church. And so Luke, right from the very beginning, is saying, I want to set before you the very center and animus and power of the church. It is Jesus' presence with you. Because he says at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, For lo, I am with you always, right? Even to the end of the age. I'm going away, but I'm not going away. I physically won't be here, but I'm not restrained by that physicality because I have a plan to remain with you because I'm just beginning. And the glories and the wonders and the conversions and the change and the transformation that you've glimpsed through my time here on earth is about to just explode 
in every direction. And it will throughout all of human history until I bring it to ultimate consummations. I want you to know we're just getting started. And we might ask, well, how is he going to do that? Well, Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before his ascension. You know, got to be a moment of a little worry for Jesus' disciples. So you're going to go away and you're going to leave us to do what? Oh, yeah, like do this whole church thing. Like be your witnesses. In the, okay, I feel a little underqualified for this. And he goes, oh, you are so, you don't even know how unqualified you are for this. But don't worry, I got a plan. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now it doesn't matter what scholar you read on the book of Acts. Every single scholar will tell you this verse, key verse in all of the book of Acts. Why you hear it so often read in any study of the book of Acts and refer back to. And it's because Luke, who is such a systematic and orderly writer. He actually says that at the beginning of Luke, his gospel outlines the entirety of the book of Acts with this one verse. That's good. That's a good writer. He fed a lot in to this, to this particular sentence. He says this gospel is going to first come in Jerusalem. And you know what? In Acts chapter 2, which is where we are today, in Peter's sermon, what happens? The gospel powerfully comes forth in Jerusalem. And then if you turn pages in the book of Acts, what you're going to find is it swells out of Jerusalem into Judea. And then the gospel continues to swell out of Judea into Samaria. And then by the end of the book of Acts, you know where we are? We have Paul going to Rome, which is the end of the earth. The uttermost parts of the earth to the farthest reaches of the then known world. He's got his eyes set on Spain. What Acts is telling us, what Luke is telling us, is that what Jesus predicted would happen at the beginning with his disciples before his ascension through the power of the Spirit actually happened. And God began to fulfill his mission through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's one reason why Acts 1-8 is so important. The other reason why Acts 1-8 is so important is because it identifies our calling as believers. It's that word, witnesses. We are to be his witnesses. And we will, over the course of this series, take a little time to unpack what we mean by a witness. We won't do that this morning, but we will. We'll get to it, what it means to be a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I read this verse this week in preparation for this series, knowing where the Lord's going to take us, I was struck not simply by the outline of the spread of the gospel or the witnesses that we're going to become, which is our call. I was struck by what must happen before we are witnesses and before the gospel can spread. And that is, the Spirit of God has got to fall on us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. A little previous to this verse, he says, I don't want you to go anywhere till that happens. Because if you start going out there without the Holy Spirit, you're going to make a royal mess of everything because you're not going to do this work my spirit 
is going to do this work. He is going to bear witness about me. That's exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 14 in preparation for his leaving, guiding his disciples. He says that the Holy Spirit's going to come, the comforter, and he's going to bear witness about me. I love this about the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't come go, going say, hey, look at me. I'm a big shot. I'm a big deal. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit comes and he shines the spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, look at Christ. I want you to see him. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit is. And Jesus says in John 14, when he comes, he will bear witness about me. And then he says this most amazing thing. Looking at his disciples, he says, and you will bear witness too. Because you've been with me from the beginning. Jesus outlines what I'm going to call in this moment the double witnessing. The witness of you and the witness of the Spirit. And those two things come together in Acts chapter 2. Those two things come together. The witness of his disciples, of his people, and the witness of the Spirit begin to come together. Now, this is really remarkable because we are called, and this, is, this, this, has got to, this has got to, this has got to hit us. You're called into a role that you cannot do. It is God's way, and it's really important that we embrace our utter and complete dependence upon God to do what we're called to do. That's so anti-American. That is so not westward ho. That is so not take the world by the storm. That is so not like get the degree, be fully prepared, go into a job, tackle the world, you've got it by its tail. There's none of that. Like zero. So to the degree that you've got the fact that this is so different from the way that the world typically operates and the mind and heart that we typically inhabit, you're not going to be, you're not going to have the space in your head and your heart for the Holy Spirit to come in and to empower you because he works through your powerlessness, through your weakness, not through your strength. Okay, it's really important that we get this. Because we, we will, and in other contexts, and it's good and it's important to do this, we'll say things like, exercise your gifts. And what we mean by that is, do the things you're really good at. That's how the Lord's going to use you, because you're really good at that. What in the Bible communicates that? Why do you think, because you're good at it, that's how the Lord's going to use you? He says here, to Peter, let me remind you. I mean, don't you have this vision of Peter? He's like this. He's kind of husky. Is he kind of husky in your mind? Like a little bit? Like he's just, it's a little like the suit fits a little tight, kind of like mine. Like it just a little bit like that. And he's a strong, he's a, he's a strong guy. And, he gets, and he's got this golden tongued, you know, preacher. He's a fisherman for goodness sakes. Don't, don't let that be lost on you. Don't let that be lost in you. Think of the ministry that you don't do because you don't think you're good at it. And then read this passage. Who said you had to be good at it? Hello, this is not about us. 
This is about his kingdom. He's going to do this. He is pleased through the foolishness of preaching. Do you, do you realize that Jesus is a much better and more powerful communicator than Nate Sheridan? Because he is God. And he decided to say, I think I'll put you out there to do that. It is because he glories in using our weakness. He gets glory from your weakness and using you and us going, I can't believe he used her. I mean, of all people, he used her. He used him. They can't find their way out of a paper bag. How in the world did God use? That's his way. Remarkably, that's his way. That's what he does. It is the power of God and the gospel of God transforming the people of God. That's what it is. Now, sure, we have a role. We have to inhabit it. We have to exercise it. We have to do it. But we can't do what it is we're called. And so we've got to do it with the, the desperate sense that only God can do it. As we go. As we say yes. And this is what you see with Peter when he comes in this moment speaking the gospel in verse 22. When the men of Israel hear these words, this is the gospel as he speaks it. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I love this. <laughs> this Jesus that God from before the foundation of the world set apart for the purposes in his divine plan to send him to the cross for you. It, was, it didn't take God by surprise. He planned the death of his son because of his love for you. We're going to get there. He planned it, but then notice this next verse. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay? So... So God, through the definite foreknowledge and plan of God from before the foundation of the world, set in motion the redemption that would accomplish our salvation. But you, as Peter speaks to the 3,000 plus there in Jerusalem, you are the ones who are responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see these two truths. Peter is showing us two things. He is saying that God's provision of Jesus is absolutely an overflow of his love and his grace towards us. He had planned it from before the foundation of the world to draw you in as one of his treasured possessions. Though there was nothing in you to merit it, to earn it, he set that in motion because he loves you. And because his grace, as illogical as that may sound, his grace is just so magnanimous that he delights in saving you. He wants to be in relationship with you. It's been his definite plan and foreknowledge that he would set Christ on the cross for you. And then simultaneously he tells us this cross is the overflow of God's love and grace that draws to himself. And he says it's your responsibility that Jesus died. Now if you get to the bottom of that, let me know. It's mysterious. It's profound. It's profound. There is both 
a sovereignty in God's love and grace and a responsibility for us as his people that go side by side, hand in hand, in the events surrounding the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do just very briefly is say, how is this our responsibility? How is this our responsibility? And some of you may be thinking, I wasn't even there. I wasn't even there. How is it possible that Peter would write this and know years later, Middle Tennessee, we're going to be looking at this passage, and he'd say, you crucified him. Well, maybe he's talking about, you know, those Pharisees who, who manipulated Judas and, and, and led Jesus into the betrayal. Maybe he's talking about those people in the crowd who said, crucify him when they were before Pilate. Maybe that's who Peter is really after in this passage. Well, the, the reason that can't be the truth is that we can be confident that some of the people who are in this 3,000 plus member crowd are not directly responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them may not have even been there. Some of them may not have even known Jesus while he ministered on the earth. We don't know. But it's really easy and safe to assume as people have come in from out of town for the Feast of Pentecost, the first fruits, that many of them weren't directly or actively or physically involved in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, that's not Peter's point. That's not Peter's point. Peter wants us to know that the responsibility for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a physical or a space and time matter. It's a spiritual matter. And it has to do with your sin, with my sin, and the sin of all of his people throughout history. You see, some probably were sitting there thinking, what, I crucified Jesus? This guy is crazy. And then others were saying, wait, I get it. It was my sin that drove him to the cross. It was my guilt that led him to the cross. I am the one who is ultimately culpable for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that actually has to, to somehow in some way ring deeply true with you and begin to in some way sober you, shatter you even, at the thought that it was you who crucified Christ. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the hands that nailed him. It was you. It was me. It was our sin that crucified Christ. It's why Rembrandt, in that very famous painting of the lifting up of Christ, painted his own visage, his own face, in the lifting up of the cross. Why did he do that? Because he got it. He knew that, that Jesus was lifted up and was crucified because of his sin. He was responsible. And this is why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He wants us to know that every single one of us is responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ because all have sinned. I love this about our God, and I love what it is that Luke is doing here in Acts chapter 2. He is saying, we're not awesome. We're not great. He's saying we are hopelessly lost sinners who have the responsibility for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
our actions of sin are so deep and grievous towards a holy and almighty God that it would require that the very Son of God would come and in your place would have to bear the penalty that you were due for sin and for judgment. Now, I, I love the fact that he is not, and this is really important, this is what creates that desperateness, okay, in our hearts. He is not here saying, I just want you to feel good about you. I just think there's a little hero somewhere inside of you needs to come out. This is, this is Christianity self-esteemism club. This is us feeling really good about where we are. He, he says, you crucified Jesus. That's what he says. He loves us so much that he's not willing to lie to us like the world is. Because you know, down deep in your heart, you're not awesome. You're not great. You don't wake up in the morning and love for everybody just spills out of your soul. It just doesn't. If you're not woke up to that yet, then you've not yet really got it. He's saying this is, this is deep and penetrable, very center of who it is we are in our brokenness, and it's so grievous that the Lord Jesus Christ had to go to the cross in your stead in order to pay for it. This is why this cut to the heart is a picture primarily of conviction. Because it's dawning this crowd, 3,000 of them, all of a sudden, that they're the ones that are guilty. And that Jesus, whom, whom was crucified, was perfectly innocent. That he was, as Peter says earlier in his passage here in Acts chapter 2, from Joel and from, and from David, the prophet. He says, Jesus was the Messiah whom you've long to see. He is the one who will draw the Gentiles in. He is the greater David who is the fulfillment of the promises that were given in the book of Samuel. He is everything that you were looking for and when he came you killed him. And friends, if he came now, don't be deceived we would do the very same thing again. We're not better. Lest the Lord let the scales fall from our eyes. Lest the Lord be merciful to us so that we can see him for who he is and see us for who we are. And in that moment say like they have said, brothers, what shall we do? Do you feel the desperateness of that question? That's the beginning of the work of the Spirit in a powerful way in your heart when you get to the place where you say, what shall we do? I love it when I'm in a meeting with one of the members of Cornerstone or a visitor or someone in our community. I had a wonderful moment of sharing the gospel this week with a young lady in our community. I was sitting there with her and she's asking questions about the gospel and following Christ and what it means. As I'm unpacking some of the scriptures and the teaching from God's word, that sort of desperate sense of, I know something is really wrong with me. And I've done a lot to try to make it right. And nothing seems to be working. And she's looking into my eyes and she's asking, 
What do I do? Now listen, that is the beginning of a walk with Christ, but let me tell you, that is the path of walking with Him as well. You don't become a Christian and then all of that need is over. You become a Christian to live more deeply into that moment day by day by day. To increasingly feel your need of dependence and desperateness for God to come and meet you right where you are. He loves to do that. He longs to do that. That's what he wants to do with our community. That's what he wants to do with our community. He wants to create this spirit. He wants this to happen inside of us. And what that means is that right now there are some of you who really feel like you need to be honest with yourself. You really feel like you've got it pretty much together. I mean, you've got money in the bank. Life's going okay. You're a pretty good person. People say a lot of nice things about you. And you have no sense of the desperateness that the Spirit must come and He must do everything that you're called to do. There's no sense of it. And the Lord is calling us into that. Some of us have marriages in a pretty bad place. Some of us have estranged relationships with children. Some of us have long unreconciled relationships, habitual sins which we keep hidden. You know what breaks my heart? Is when someone for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, walks into my office, Tony's office, and some saying that 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, I've been doing this, and now I got found out and I got to deal with it. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait. The gospel is big enough. You don't have to defend. We know you don't have it together. We know it. We are completely convinced of it. Like utterly convinced. It will not surprise us. We'll go, yep, been there. I'm struggling with you. Let's do this together. And when someone says, finally, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. There it is. There it is. What shall we do? I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And Peter says, repent. Repent. Now we may think, okay, well that's hard to do. Well, it's incredibly hard to do. In fact, you can't do that either. Repentance is a gift of grace. Repentance is a gift of grace. It is the gift of turning from your sin unto Christ and entirely and completely resting all of who you are upon Him. All of who you are on Him. It is a work that only the Holy Spirit can do. But when the Holy Spirit does it, He invigorates our will. And we run from sin and we relax into the arms of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the power of that sin begins to break. Because it's brought out into the light. And the Spirit of the Lord is leading us to Christ. 
And all of a sudden, the joy of the Lord begins to fill our hearts and the manifestation of the kind of community that's created in Acts 2, 42 to 47 begins to show up. That's what we're asking for. We're asking to be shot through with this reality. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch, to make Nate his treasure. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin on his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It's my responsibility. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. That's our work. That's our message. That's our song. That's what brings us together as a community. That's what we'll create. Acts 2, 42 to 47, should God through the power of the Holy Spirit grant it to us. And so I have two things as we close. I have two things and they're challenges. They're challenges to you. They're challenges to me. I'm entering this challenge with you. I want you to do two things. I'm asking you to do these two things for the next 40 days. Yes, you heard me right. 40 days. And you can do these things. I'm asking you to read this passage that we read this morning every day for the next 40 days. Every day. Now, for those of you who go, goodness, that's a lot. Took me a minute and 40 seconds this morning to do it. It's not a big deal. I timed it so I'd know exactly. I read slow. I didn't read in the preacher fastness. I read slow. 40 days, I want you to read this. Now, after you read this passage, I want you to say, Lord, make this community a cornerstone. Make this community in Franklin. Make this community in Nashville. Make this community all over the world and start with me. That's what I want you to pray. Very simple, isn't it? But it's very bold. And let me warn you. He is the kind of God who would answer that prayer. So let's pray, Will. Father in heaven, we ask you, as we enter into these 40 days together, would you answer that prayer? Come and move among us. We will settle for nothing less. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.